Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. God's word, Psalm 119. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn it open to Psalm 119. We're going to be taking a look at it this morning. Well, I was an awkward seventh grade student. I was at the height of insecurity. I was infinitely creative in seeking the approval of others because, of course, I was laser-focused on a mission to be cool, to be liked. And back then, getting liked meant real friends, not clicks on your page. And it was obvious. I was living a story that was about me. And then I met Dan. Dan, not Dan Larson... Dan was to all appearances not the least bit cool, but he was one of those grown-ups. He was one of those grown-ups that uh, was willing uh, to be present to somebody insecure. He was not too busy, not too important. He was the kind of grown-up who spent his nights and weekends volunteering in a church youth group because he had a vision for his life of reaching students with the love of Jesus. You see, he wasn't living a story that was about him. He was living a story that was about God. I remember two things about Dan. First of all, Dan was seemingly always willing to be inconvenienced by sarcastic punks like myself, making space for us without making us feel less than or like a bother. The other thing I remember about Dan was he knew the Bible. He knew it really well. In fact, he even liked it. He liked it so much that it oozed out of him. He knew uh, lines from books I didn't know existed, and they would roll off of his tongue naturally as if we might all know what he was talking about. He seemed to have the Bible on his heart as if it were real to him and it made sense to him and it changed how he lived because he was secure and he was selfless. I was insecure and I was selfish. 
The difference was what Dan allowed to form and shape his everyday life. Dan had built a habit of studying scripture. This was one of my first experiences of a person who exemplified and embodied the person described in Psalm 119. Blessed is the one whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the Torah or the instruction of the Lord. Psalm 119 is one of those places that just erupts with celebration of the reality that I saw being lived out in Dan. It's a long reflection that celebrates the necessity and the abundant goodness of God's word. 176 lines describing the benefits of scripture. So Psalm 119, it's the heavyweight contender. It weighs in as the longest of all the Psalms, 176 verses, 22 stanzas. We're going to go line by line. We'll be done by dinner. (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, In fact, it's one of three Psalms that celebrate the the scriptures. The Psalter opens with Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of wicked but delights in the Torah and the instruction of Yahweh. Uh, Then book one of the Psalms has Psalm 19, another uh, description of the goodness of the word of God. The instruction of Yahweh is perfect, making the simple wise. It's more precious than gold. By them, your words, your servant is warned and kept from sin. And then book five has Psalm 119. So there are two bookends, book one and book five of the Psalms that exalt the scriptures. And so it bookends the entire book of Psalms. And Psalm 119 is an acrostic, which means it's a poem with each succeeding unit starting with a letter from the alphabet. And so there are 22 Hebrew letters and there are 22 stanzas in Psalm 119, each uh, letter beginning a group of descriptions of God's word. It's the ABCs of the Bible, literally. Uh, and so why? Why would this form, why would, why would this way of expressing the goodness of God's word uh, uh, be uh, what the author did? He, he did it because he wants to make kind of a subconscious point as he's covering the ABCs of scripture. He wants to make the point that this, the word of God is all encompassing. It's pervasive. It is relevant for every part of life. That the Bible isn't meant for this one little private sphere of your life, but it in fact speaks to authoritatively shapes every dimension of life. It is complete. And so this psalm uses eight words to describe God's word. Eight synonyms, eight Hebrew words used to describe the word of God. And they're found in nearly every stanza. They're words like decree, ordinance, judgment, statute, word, commandment, precept, promise, and law. When you see these, they're all synonymous describing the scriptures. And so these eight words highlight the dimensions of what God's word is. And fundamentally what the word of God is, is revelation. It's God expressing himself, making himself known. You see, revelation is something being made known that couldn't have been found out otherwise. 
Revelation is something being revealed that couldn't have been discovered by human effort or ingenuity or empirical inspection. God is God making, God's word is God making himself known to us. He is a God who speaks rather than is silent. And so the Bible is this 66 book collection of God speaking in and through messy, culturally embedded human authors. But it conveys perfectly and expresses authoritatively who God is and what he's about. At the same time, we have a God who speaks and empowers. He sends his spirit to empower a community of people who will take him at his word and live shaped by it. And so we want to look at Psalm 119 this morning to see what is the benefit of being shaped by God's word. There are three things I want to show you this morning. First, it's a gift for our good. Second of all, it's to be received through obedience And third, it connects us to the giver. So first of all, let's look at the first thing we see in Psalm 119. That God's word is a gift given for our good. That it is a gift for our benefit. The first line of the psalm opens, Blessed. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the Torah of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes. The author uses a word that opens up the entire book of the Psalms, right? Blessed is the one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but delights in the instruction of God. The Psalm opens by telling us how good it is and how good it works out for the person who walks according to God's instruction. Blessed is a great word too, by the way. It means deeply happy. It's a deep satisfaction word. The psalmist is saying you can live from a secure place. You can be internally very satisfied even though there are enemies and terrible circumstances if you let the scriptures speak their authority into your life. Look at verse 14. He says, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. How many of you on Highway 26 drive past the Megabucks or Powerball sign and see like the 200 and however many million dollars and they're like, well, that sounds nice, right? You delight in the thought of having a fraction of it, don't you? Like that would, I, I, I do. Like my nephew Jack told me the other day, you need to win that Uncle Maddie. And I was like, you're right, I do. Like, I, that's a good idea. There's delight in the thought of riches. But he says, there is great delight in following your statutes as one rejoices And great riches. How much better is the mind of God, the heart of God, and connection with God than stuff that will fade away? The author is saying, look, the Bible makes my heart glad. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, my heart is so glad because of the Bible. How on earth can that be? You see, if we've got to be honest with ourselves, culturally speaking, we stand at a cultural vantage point where we look at this claim and we think it doesn't make any sense. Because anything that challenges personal autonomy, anything that impinges on my freedom to do what I want when I want to do it, is seen as the opposite of delight and joy. It's downright inhumane, right? That's how we view it in our culture. And so uh, I want to say that this is a countercultural claim that the psalmist is making. It's subversive. It's rebellious to culture. And it was just as backwards for Jesus in his day. Later on in, in Matthew 6, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus borrows this language of blessing, of happiness, of deep satisfaction. He translates it, uses the Greek word this time, and he says, blessed, happy, lucky, fortunate, fortunate. 
are the spiritually bankrupt, the ones who get, they've got nothing. Happy are the spiritual zeros, the people who amount to nothing. Blessed are the ones who cry, the criers, the lamenters, the mourners, who, be, who, who see what's wrong and grieve it. Blessed are the ones who refuse to be steamrollers with their personality and their power, the meek. Or happy are the ones with an appetite for right relationships, who hunger and thirst after righteousness. The the happy ones are the ones who work to reconcile enemies. That's right, the peacemakers. Uh, The lucky ones are the ones who are hated because of their work for justice. Persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Jesus is throwing the values of his world upside down too. And he's saying, really the happy ones, the deeply satisfied ones, are the ones who take God's word as their marching orders for life. They're deeply satisfied. They're the ones who have it made. It's a total inversion of values. This is Jesus speaking. And so... God's refusal to be silent, his insistence on showing us who he is, who we are, and how we're to live, is a wellspring of satisfaction and delight if you trust him. The question I want to wrestle with this morning is how is it that God's word brings so much satisfaction and delight? How does it make our hearts glad? The two things I want to show you in the Psalms, uh, in this Psalm in particular, in terms of why it's for our benefit, why it's for our good, how it brings satisfaction and blessing. First of all, this scriptures, the psalmist says, brings illumination. Illumination. In verse 105, flip there. All right. To verse 105, the psalmist says, your word is a lamp for my feet. Like, ooh, cool, right? It's really cool when it's dark outside, right? Your word is a lamp to my feet. That's what instruction does. It shows us what we couldn't figure out on our own. It illuminates reality in life. God's word shines light, and it shines light so reality can be perceived for what it is. When you're walking in a dark forest at night, you don't trust your judgment, you trust your light. Your judgment will lead you astray. Your light will show you what's up. This happened to me a bunch of years ago when I was the, uh, a youth pastor here. I had like 50 or 60 of your students and I took them into the ape caves. And so we went down into this cave and being young 20-something that I was and eager to get into the cave, I forgot to check the batteries on my headlamp. I was just excited to wear a headlamp, right? I was, I was pumped. And as we went in, I was following up the rear. Of course, I let them go first. I was following up the rear. I didn't want anybody to get lost, right? So uh, I was uh, heading in thinking, gosh, my light's not very bright. It'll get brighter the darker it gets, I'm sure. And as we went, instead of getting brighter, my light got more and more dim, right? And sure enough, I had dead batteries. And before I knew it, I was walking around in the dark leading a bunch of your students. I didn't tell you when I was their youth pastor. I'm telling you now when I'm not. So... uh, And this, this is, this is the reality. Jesus describes this reality in Matthew 6, further on in the Sermon on the Mount. He describes this kind of person who's walking in the dark, right? Who thinks that they're going to be fine with the light that they have only to realize that it's insufficient. In verse 22, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. 
If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Look at what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, if, if the source that provides your insight, that feeds your perception of reality and meaning, isn't actually true, if it isn't actually illuminated by light, then he says, consider how encompassingly dark your perception of reality really is. He says, look, your picture of God will be off. Your, your idea of who you are, your identity is going to end up outsourced to things that cannot tell you who you are. And your lenses that frame life's meaning are at best going to be distorted. The problem is, right? The problem with this metaphor of light is that we have a darkness habit. We like darkness. That's what John says in John 3. He says, here's the verdict, right? After he says, you know, God so loved the world that he sent his only son, right? Then he goes on and he says, here's the verdict, guys. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed, right? But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And so the psalmist is saying, look, we have... We have light. John goes, no, that's great that you have light. We have a darkness love that we've got to deal with first. And John's good news is that the light he's describing is Jesus, right, has come to expose evil in order to heal it, in order to forgive it, in order to cleanse it. And that's what Dave's been talking about the last two weeks, that we have this great resource in confession and repentance, Right, to step into light and allow God's grace to be healing. There's something amazing, though, about walking in darkness. When you are by yourself, when you're living your, for yourself, you can convince yourself really easily that your darkness doesn't affect anybody but you. Right? But once you have some people that you see you're connected to, once you have people who you feel you're responsible to, like I had 50 kids in the dark, right? You become suddenly aware of your need for light. And that's maybe happening to some of you right now. God's been working in your life. You, you realize after you had kids, you need some illumination on how to raise them. And so you're back at church or you're, you're bringing God's word back into your life. Others of you, it's that you've stumbled. Or that life has just kind of beat you up. It's worn out your batteries and, and life has become increasingly dim. And so you are moving towards Christ. Some of you realize that your marriage had some speckles of light, but overall it was darkness as each of you lived hidden from each other. And now the kids are gone or whatever's happened and you're realizing we need light. You need illumination. And God's word does that. He shows us what we cannot see on our own. That's the point of light. It is a source generated outside of ourselves. There's a great, a great temptation in our cultural moment to say, just look inward. Look for your inner light. For that spark that you have, guess what? The further in you look, the further inward you're bent. And it's ugly in there because it's self-absorbed. And it isn't light at all. It's more and more darkness. And so Jesus is saying, look, light will offer... Light is coming from outside you. You have to tap into that. And so Jesus came as a pure act of grace, he says. And, and the word of God illuminates our life. It sheds light on the path before us because it shines light on Jesus. And Jesus, John says, is the way. 
The, the, the next reason the psalmist says the word is for our benefit is that it not only provides deep satisfaction and it not only uh, provides illumination, it offers us protection. If God's word offers us illumination, uh, a source of inside outside ourselves that's truthful and reliable and trustworthy, then it also works as a defensive weapon. Look at what the psalmist says in verse 9. He says, how can a young person, that is someone with great many choices ahead of them, that's a bunch of you in the room, some of you just maybe have less choices ahead of you, but this verse applies, doesn't it? It applies to anybody with a great many choices before them. How does a young person keep their way, their path, their life, their character pure, without fault, right? Without contamination. The answer is simple. He says, with scripture, right? By living according to your scripture. How does a young person keep from falling, keep from stumbling? By taking God at his word and ordering life accordingly. And so, as we said, Dave, for the last two weeks, has been exploring these, these uh, what are called penitential psalms. Psalms of confession and repentance. Big word for you, kids. Good luck. Sorry. Uh, how, it's, a, it's a group of psalms that deal with sin and deal with confession. So Dave's been helping us unpack what do we do when we have sin in our life. We say out loud the sin we've done, sin done to us or in our presence. And we turn. We turn from a life bent away from God toward him and move in his direction and trust and obedience those are great disciplines we need to keep them at the same time the scriptures teach us how to avoid getting there to begin with right that helps right like you can end up in the darkness and it's good to learn how to turn on the lights but it's also helpful to just walk in light Okay, and that's what the scriptures are saying. He's saying, how does a young person keep their way pure? How do they keep from falling? By living according to your word. The second stanza of this psalm is saying, look, if you want to avoid the damage caused by sin, then focus your life on scripture. Let the Bible story shape who you are and what you love and what you pursue. Let the God revealed in the Bible win and capture your heart. Let his wisdom and instruction and commands have the final word in your life. If you're thinking, okay, this sounds like it's becoming a guilt trip. How important should the Bible really be in my life? Let me, let me just point us no further than Jesus. Let's look at Jesus for a second. Because when Jesus was tempted as we, that's what Hebrews says, he was tempted in every way that we are, but without sin, what did Jesus do? What, how did he employ his weapons in the fight against sin and temptation? I think it's astounding. Let's look at what the word says. In Matthew 4, Jesus, after being baptized by John, uh, the word says that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And so it's God's Spirit who's leading him, who's filling him. Luke says that he was tempted for 40 days. Matthew says that he was in the wilderness fasting for 40 days, and he was hungry, understatement of the century, right? And so he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness, just like Israel was led into the desert to be tested, and they sinned. Jesus remained faithful. And so notice this. The Son of God, the High King of Heaven, heads into a cosmic conflict in the wilderness with the exact same resources that are given to every one of his followers. He's armed with the Spirit and the Word. This is all we see that he has as his aid 
in a hungry battle with temptation. He's physically deprived. He's facing continuous... I mean, he's not feeling good, okay? This is a moment where Jesus isn't doing so good, right? He is not Instagramming any meals for 40 days, okay? He is toast. And verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, it sounds an awful lot like Genesis 3, did God really say? Let's throw all of this into doubt. Let's throw your identity under suspicion. If you are really the son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. How bad can it be? You're hungry, right? Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. He fights the battle with scripture. And so when the devil says, hey, look, do this, it's fine. Jesus says, no, hey, look here, I'm doing this. Right. And so then the devil says, OK, let's go up to this holy city, shows him the highest point in the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written. He quotes Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Right. Satan goes, all right, you want to quote the Bible at me? Two can play at that game. Thanks very much. The Bible also says that he will, God will protect his chosen one, his Messiah. So go ahead and jump. Jesus answered him, it is written, do not put your, the Lord your God to the test. See, Jesus is ready. He's saturated his life in the scriptures and he knows Psalm 91 does not mean jump. And he knows what it really means. And so on one hand, the word is enough for Jesus in the face of physical lack. It is also coherent in the face of distortion. And we're about to see that it is authoritative in the face of temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I give to you, right? You're the king, you're the, most, you're the high king of heaven. It's yours rightfully and you can have it without suffering. If you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. It's a great story, isn't it? It's a brilliant example of how we can keep our way pure, just as the psalmist said. In each instance, the temptation was custom tailored to Jesus and Jesus responded from scripture. And this is true of us. Temptation's always custom tailored to each one of us. And we, like Christ, can respond with scripture if we will saturate our lives with it. Each time Jesus says, it's written, it's written, it's written. Now, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 says the same thing, right? He says, you and I share a cosmic conflict just like Jesus we are in an epic battle with the forces, the spiritual forces of darkness, of evil. And what, what are we given to take our stand? Paul says, your job is to stand against those forces, to stand firm. There is an enemy, he has real schemes, and he wants to drag you down. That's his gig. He wants to steal, kill and destroy, and he's a liar. And so, on Paul's list of necessary items to stand firm against the uh, forces of evil at work in the world who have a target on your head, he says, you need the Word of God. He calls it the sword of the Spirit. I mean, it's a list of things like belts and shoes. He gives you one weapon. The sword of the Spirit. The Word of God. It's pretty epic. He says, you've got one weapon. 
use it. The sword of the Spirit. Everything else is defensive. And so the only weapon on the list is of total necessity. It was of total necessity to Jesus, the Son of God. I'm a fool if I think it's not a necessity to me. I mean, right? If Jesus needed the Spirit and the Word to stand against Satan, who am I if I think I don't need either? I'm a fool. We have kids. We have three of them today. Uh, They're in the room. We have a bunch of you kids in the room. And this is something that I'm thinking probably happens in your houses. It happens in mine. My kids have a very helpful phrase uh, that they can use. Um, Their greatest resource to persuade myself or my wife, their greatest resource to accomplish what they want is to invoke my authority or my mo- my wife's, and not my mom. Whoa, nope. That's a terrible, terrible misstep. I'm sorry, Lauren. All right. Ha! Right. Their greatest resource. The illustration's lost. All right. Let's laugh at me and then let's come back together. All right. So the greatest resource my kids have is simple phrase. But mom said. But dad said. All right. Ten more minutes before going to bed. Mom said, we get, we get a snack every day after school. Mom said, right? Uh, uh, one more popsicle from the freezer. Dad said, right? It is game, set, match when my kids invoke the authority of a parental decree, promise, statute, or word, right? Because here's the deal, right? Kids, you, you don't have any inherent authority, in the economy of your house, right? You're a little person. It's the big people who have the power, right? And, and, and your greatest weapon to demolish the buzzkill of a dad is to say, but mom said, right? Okay? And here's the deal. You and I are absolutely no different. You and I are absolutely no different. We are people who are constantly assailed by our own flesh. That is the part of us that has an inclination towards sin. We have a new self. There's a, we're a new creations in Christ. Right? With new desires and the, the Spirit's help and power. But there is an old nature that Paul calls the flesh. And it's close. And it is bent inward. And it is bent towards sin and rebellion. And we, are, we, we struggle with it. And and every one of us is assailed by the enemy who tempts, who says, go here, do this. It's going to be easier. You deserve it. We are each assailed by an enemy who accuses, who says, you're nothing. You're damaged. You're guilty. He throws down lies to tempt and accuse. The twin schemes of the evil one are accusation and temptation. And what power do we have to turn down temptation that will derail us or rebut accusation that will discourage us? Dad said. My father said. My father said. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My father said there to be no other gods beside the living God. See, dad said works every time. Because we're invoking the authority and the power of the living God. And so when we invoke the aid of God's word, it's our best defense. It was Jesus's 
and it is ours. How can a young person keep their way pure? Same resource as Jesus. Spirit who helps us and his spirit inspired word that guides us. But that requires some action on our parts, guys. We can't just be passive in this. It's not a passive sport. It's a participation required sport. See, grace enables us to be forgiven. It also empowers us to live a new life in the power of the Spirit under the shaping authority of the Word. It requires some consistent use of the Scripture. The psalmist says this, I've hidden your Word in my heart. I meditate on your precepts day and night. In other words, the psalmist is saying, look, I have a habit of studying Scripture that puts guardrails on my life against the constant foe of sin and the flesh and the devil. There's this old uh, preacher named Richard Baxter, uh, and he said this, this is great, he says, It is not the work of the Spirit to tell you the meaning of Scripture and to give you the knowledge of divinity, that is the knowledge of God, without your own study and labor, but to bless that study and give you knowledge thereby. Right? Like, it's not going to read itself. It's not going to apply itself. It, it, it's not going to do its work without you participating. Is it? I mean, you just, it, we don't learn through osmosis. We learn through habit. We're formed by habit. And so, you know... The point that Richard Baxter was making is the Spirit's not a labor-saving device. He uses our participation. Notice how many action words are in these two stanzas alone. Right? This is a psalmist who walks, keeps, follows, obeys, considers, learns, seeks, meditates. That's just a few. There are, it is an action-oriented thing. And the, grif, the gift of Scripture then is, is, is accessed through obedience. We're meant to take God at his word and order life accordingly. James 1 says, don't be merely hearers of the word, but be doers also. Otherwise, it's of no use to you. It can't illuminate anything and it can't protect you. It's just there. And so we have to form a habit of reading it to be formed, not just informed. But lastly, the the scriptures bring us satisfaction and delight because they connect us to the giver. You see, the psalmist says in verse 10, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. You see, it's God that the psalmist is seeking. Not just information, not theology, but God himself. Right? And so... The word isn't an abstract set of principles or arbitrary rules. They're personal. It's relational. The the scriptures express God's own character and nature. They're the means through which we get to know him. You see, the Bible is fundamentally relational. It points us not to our works that need to be done but to his works that are already done. They point us not to our goodness that we must somehow prove, but to his goodness, which is offered freely. See, Jesus said that the entire point of the Bible was about him. It's about connection to a person. Get this. And the Emmaus Road in Luke 24, after Jesus has been raised from the dead, raised from the dead, big deal, right? Kind of a big deal. 
He comes up alongside two disciples, Clopas and maybe his wife or his friend. We don't know. And he is incognito. They don't recognize him. They don't see that it's Jesus. They just see a guy who doesn't get what just happened, who doesn't get their trauma. And he's like, what are you guys talking about? Well, you'd walk and they kind of tell him what happened. And then he he rebukes him. How, How foolish, how slow of heart you are to believe all that the scriptures have taught. Right? Here's what's amazing to me. Jesus unpacks for these two disciples the importance of the Bible pointing to Jesus before he points out that he's actually alive. I mean, which do you think would be a priority? Hey guys, I'm alive, therefore you need to go back and look at your Bibles because it proves I'm the Messiah. No, Jesus goes, hey guys, look at your Bibles again. It points to the Messiah, his death and his resurrection and then his glory. That's what the Bible's about. It's leading you to the Messiah. And by the way, let's have dinner. I'll break some bread. Hey, it's me, Jesus. Poof. Okay? I mean... It's a priority to Jesus that, he, that, that we as his disciples get that this is about him. That it's a light for our path because it illumines the light. And so he said to them in Luke 24, verse 44, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. That is your Old Testament. You see, the Bible leads to deep delight and satisfaction because it's the written word that points to the living word, the word made flesh. It's ultimately pointing to Jesus, who is our great delight and our great satisfaction. See, it's not hard to see why Dan was captivated by the Bible. It's not. It's not hard to see why Dan, you know, instead of being selfish and insecure, was selfless and secure. It's because he'd made a habit of hearing God and obeying him, of hearing God and connecting with him. Because he was connected to the self-giving God who selflessly makes us his sons and daughters and secures us in his love demonstrated on the cross. It connects us to the God who's glorified, who's most exalted in his humble death, execution as a criminal on our behalf. And so the Bible is meant for you to connect to him. You need his word if you want to connect to him, if you want to live a selfless and secure life. And so we we want to celebrate the reality of the God who comes and reveals himself to us and his glory through his humility by going to the tables this morning, by coming and receiving the bread and the cup as a way of declaring again, I trust the living word. He illumines my life and protects my life. My life is secure in Him. And He orients me outward on mission in the same manner that the Son of God was. And so we come to the table this morning just to again declare His goodness, His sufficiency, and His authority in our life to come under His Word, to be shaped by the living Word. And we want to make a habit of praying as a body that if there are some places in your life where you need to connect or reconnect to God, we have a team of people around the room just standing at the edges to pray for you, to just join with you and to partner with you in the work of connecting to Christ. And we'll just pray and love and be there for you if you want prayer today. 
Let me pray for us as we go to the table. Lord, we thank you for your abundant goodness that you are a God who is not silent, but who speaks and who speaks in such profound ways through your word. Ways that illumine life, that light up the path that we are meant to live, that protect us on that way, and that connects us to you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your living word, crucified and risen, ascended and ruling. We want to join you in your mission as we're shaped by what you speak. In Jesus' name, amen.